Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Daily. As this election campaign starts to draw to a close, today's guest couldn't be better timed. Craig Oliver, Director of Communications for David Cameron Inside Number 10, editor of the BBC News at 6 and News at 10. So he's uniquely placed to uh, give us insight into the role of the media in an election campaign, specifically the BBC, and what it's like to be inside Downing Street, trying to get those messages out, trying to firefight. We talk about a whole load of things. He's absolutely fascinating. There's some great stories and great insights in here. I began by asking him, as someone who lived in Scotland in the formative years of his life, whether, whether he had a different antenna for what was happening in Scotland back at the start of that 2014 independence referendum. So I went up to Scotland when I was 11 and, as I had to say, had lots of relatives in Scotland. And what was really interesting, I was sort of thinking about, you know, why was I sort of more drawn towards the Conservatives? I think the the establishment in Scotland when I was growing up was Labour. Mm. I mean, it really, really was. It was almost impossible to imagine anything other than um, Scottish Labour being in charge. And then my first job was working as a producer uh, at Scottish Television. And there was a, a journalist there called Fiona Ross. And... I felt amazed the extent to which she was able to support Labour in her commentary and nobody really questioned it. And there was a story about Monklands um, when I was there and a Conservative um, MP came up and said, look, you know, this council is giving seats to Catholic Labour voters and it's all very dodgy. And I remember producing the report for um, Fiona then and basically the tenor of it wasn't far short of um, this lackey of the establishment dares to come up to Scotland. He's not even fit to lick the boots of the Scottish working classes and he dares to suggest there's a problem here. And actually two weeks later it turned out it was all true and a massive scandal and a massive problem. So I felt when I was growing up slightly anti-establishment I wasn't a dyed-in-the-wall conservative but I felt more slightly drawn to that and I think it was actually reacting to my surroundings more than anything so when you find yourself in 2014 during this independence referendum that David Cameron's fighting trying to keep the union together did you have a different reading on what was happening up there to say some of your conservative colleagues so I became very involved in what was going on because just I had family up there and I was able to talk about it and I visited there and I could see that it was a real issue and a real problem I remember the day just walking into the office and David Cameron saying to me by the way we're going to have a Scottish referendum I was like are we? Why? (laughs) Where is this coming from? What's this all about? So we knew a couple of months before it was announced and his feeling was that Alex Salmon basically was on the rise Um, if England was seen to be stopping them having their say on this, it would be a massive Mm. problem. So he thought he would steal a march on Alex Salmond and say, "Okay, you can have it. Um, The reality of it was it was an extremely painful, long, drawn-out process, Um, extremely difficult, divided families in Scotland, um, and and really stirred up a lot of um, ill-feeling and difficulty. 
and we still really aren't free from the possibility of having another uh, Scottish referendum and breaking up the union, which personally I think would be a bad thing. And in terms of this election, obviously in Scotland you have a situation where Brexit is probably the number one issue. But underneath that as well still is this debate about the union and for the Tories in yeah. Scotland... I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that's actually true in Scotland. Think? The number one issue I think is the union, really. Yeah. And I think that people are very, very motivated by that. So not very long ago, all the Conservatives... The Conservatives did very well thanks to Ruth Davidson in 2017 and saved Theresa May's bacon, basically. Yeah. Um, and that was really down to the fact that she was a convincing, strong unionist voice. And what's interesting in this election is a lot of the predictions are that the Conservatives aren't going to lose as many of the seats as people thought they would because of Brexit, because unionism is actually trumping that as a debate. And a lot of people in Scotland fear that there will be a second referendum and it could lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom. It obviously did, did the Conservatives some good at the last election to be seen as the, as the unionist voice in Scotland. They made gains at the expense of the SNP largely. Um, in a weird way, though, it also places a ceiling on the ambitions of the Conservatives in Scotland, whilst the union is the, the, the dominant debate north of the border, because they're only ever going to be able to appeal to around, at maximum, 55% of the public. Well, you've got to remember, though, that there was only one Conservative MP for <laughs> yes. a long period of time. Being a Conservative in Scotland for a long period of time was a bit like admitting to being a, you know, a drink driver or something like that. It was really socially unacceptable. It was extraordinary the extent to which people really felt this is a bad thing and having an impact. But the, strangely, the unionist debate allowed them to come back. I think somebody like Ruth Davidson, who's much more my kind of politics, who's basically um, a, a liberal conservative, the combination of that and unionism allowed them to, to grow back. What's quite interesting, quite difficult, is the tension between that and what's going on um, in the English Conservative Party. Well, uh, you, you worked for David Cameron in a, in a phenomenal period in British history where you, you have this huge referendum success. You then go into a general election campaign in 2015, which some commentators thought was going to lead to a hung parliament, leads to quite a healthy Conservative majority in, in retrospect. During that campaign, did you get a sense that that was going to be the outcome? Not at all. I think that the reality was I spent a lot of my time, half my time sitting next to Linton Crosby and half my time sitting next to David Cameron. And what was clear from David Cameron, we would look at the political betting website and it used to have a kind of thing which would say who was going to be the Prime Minister, who was going to be the largest party, all that kind of stuff. And it was constantly and consistently saying that the best we could hope for was to be a largest party in a hung parliament. And I remember sitting in the back of the car with David Cameron the day before the election and him just very, very clearly thinking we weren't going to get a majority. And the way that Linton described it was like, it's like a dam, the water builds up behind it, and sometimes the pressure's enough to break the dam, and sometimes actually it just doesn't, and so not knowing whether or not this was, was going to happen or not. But it's amazing that you were, you were kind of, not entirely basing that, I'm sure, on the political betting website. Pretty much. <laughs> but, but yeah, I thought you were going to say because of thousands of conversations with activists around the country. There's, there's an element of that, but the, the danger is that you kind of end up in a bubble and you don't really know. And also what you've got to realise is the extent to which the prevailing wisdom and prevailing orthodoxy was this. And the whole debate, we didn't do a single interview in the campaign, is like, you're not going to be able to deliver on this because it's going to be a hung parliament, or you're going to have to do a 
deal with the Lib Dems. There was almost no debate at all about what would happen if you had a majority government. And what's interesting, it was one of the first times, I think, that people realised the extent to which the establishment didn't have its finger on the pulse. Something different was going on. One thing that happened during that campaign was we took busloads of journalists down to the West Country consistently. And every time we did a clip, it was always about what was the latest sort of thing of the day or whatever. And none of the journalists ever said, by the way, why have you been to the West Country 36 times during this campaign? They weren't really getting that there's an under-the-surface campaign going on. And things are bubbling beneath the surface. And too much of politics at the moment, I think, is... What's the latest thing? Has Boris Johnson failing to show empathy for a four-year-old boy meant that he's destroyed all his hopes? Has John Ashworth, you know, talking to his supposed Tory mate caused all sorts of problems? And actually what they need to try and do is dig deep and beneath this, what's bubbling beneath the surface. And what is bubbling beneath the surface? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm stuck in my ivory tower in London trying to work out just as much as anything. I'm stuck as much as everybody. I, John Curtis is a man I respect hugely. I yes. was the editor of the BBC election programme in 2010. And that night, about half past nine, the final drop of the data comes through. And it went from being on the first three drops, the Conservatives possibly having a majority, mm. through to largest party in the Hung Parliament. And I remember standing with John Curtis and my boss, a guy called Mark Byford, who was the Deputy Director General of the BBC, and David Dimbleby, and having an argument about whether or not we should say the result of the exit poll or say, actually, it's too close to call and we can't tell. My view is, hold on, we spent £300,000 doing this. We have to tell people what the numbers are. And by the way, we're also giving it to Sky and ITN, (laughs) so we're going to look pretty dumb if we don't show it. And there was such tension in the air. Um, I remember David Dimbleby, who's the coolest customer around, just basically walked off saying, I can't deal with this. Tell me when you've made a decision. (laughs) We're on air in 15 minutes, by the way. Oh, Um, man. But Curtis, who is, it's a long way of saying that a man that I respect very highly seems to me to be saying he thinks that the Conservatives are going to breach the Red Wall and that they are going to form a majority government. In terms of comparing this campaign to 2015, do you think a campaign that you worked on and that David Cameron was leading would have done some of the things that this Conservative campaign has done, changing the Twitter handle to fact-check. I mean, I know these are perhaps distraction techniques, but do you think David Cameron would have been comfortable with those sorts of things? No, we wouldn't. Um, And I have to say I'm a bit concerned by it. It's very easy to sound pompous about these things, but I think it's really important that you do demonstrate to people that you're above board. And I think that, that it's all very easy to say, well, that was very clever and, you know, we distracted people and people ended up talking about it far more because of this. But personally, I feel very uncomfortable about it. I don't think it's a good thing to do. And look, election campaigns are a bit like sausage machines. You know, you don't want to look too closely about some of the things that go in. Of course, there are exaggerations <laughs> and all that sort of problem. But... I do think there is a line, and I think we've come very close to it in this election campaign. Because you've obviously been fighting these people before during the referendum campaign. Does this feel like they're using the same techniques that Vote Leave used? To a point, and I think that, look, what's gone on, I think, in British politics is Steve Bannon, the man that sort of was the architect of Trump's victory. Um, A lot of people have looked at the techniques and the Mm. way in which he behaves, you know, play to the base, constantly attack the media, constantly assert things that maybe have a cell of a toenail 
on the truth and assert it as true. Um, pick a fact that's peripheral, magnify and amplify it out of all proportion, then strip away in all mitigation and present it as the truth. All of these kind of techniques, people have seen, well, it worked for Trump and it appeared to work during the Brexit campaign. And I do think you're seeing things like the Liberal Democrats with their leaflets. I think they ended up looking really dumb doing that. It was like, you know, oh, look, we're close. Well, hold on, let's step back from this and actually you're nowhere near it. That was a really dumb thing to do. And then really dumb when, you know, Joe Swinson goes on and tries to defend it. It's just straightforwardly wrong. Personally, I think that there are a whole load of issues with both parties, so uh, both the main parties, I think the Labour Party, anybody sensible who understands British politics knows that the Conservative Party does not want to privatise the NHS. It is simply not true. Also, anybody who knows anything about Brexit means that the border in the Irish Sea means that you are going to have to pay some tariffs on goods that are crossing that. And that, you know, the sense in which people have pretended that those things aren't true or that with one leap we'll be free if we have a vote in the House of Commons and Brexit will be done. You could argue that's always happened, but it feels like it's happening to a bigger degree now, I think. How far has this Conservative leadership and maybe this Conservative campaign, do you think, alienating Conservatives like you? Um, the, look, I am a Remainer. I'm a Liberal Conservative. Um, you know, I, I believe in sound money and socially liberal values. Sometimes, I must admit, I've found it pretty difficult. I find it pretty difficult who have, a, you know, having a Home Secretary and two, who until recently, um, you know, said that capital punishment was okay. That worries me. Having said that, looking at the alternatives, um, I think we have tried a lot of the policies before, historically, that Labour have tried. We've seen it in foreign countries. And that would be a complete disaster. I really do think that, that it would be a deep problem and that the people who are asserting these policies when they are somebody runs a rule over them like the IFS an independent thing and just says look this is just not credible um, I, do, I, I worry about that more I think What's your assessment of Boris Johnson? I mean, he's someone that was Mayor of London for part of the time when you were running Downing Street. His relationship with David Cameron wasn't quite the Tony Blair, Gordon Brown psychodrama, but there was a, there was a soap opera element to it. There was a kind of joshing rivalry to it, and I think that they... On one level, they could. one of the funniest evenings of my life was sitting with George Osborne, Boris Johnson and David Cameron having dinner and just being able to sit there and watch these three people just take the piss out of each other <laughs> to the most extraordinary degree. And, it, you know, it's just the people who were watching were just crying with laughter as they just ripped each other to shreds. Um, and they were great fun. And then, you know, Boris is great fun. I remember walking up Downing Street with Boris when he had his beanie hat on and we were just going in and he was having a very normal chat with me. And then suddenly we became in range of the um, photographers and he said what ho Oliver we should do this Brexit lark shouldn't we and then just like disappeared in number 10 and I was like well you were planning that in your head all the way up Um, so so there is that aspect in I think he's worried about how the Conservative Party is being dragged to the right I think if you look at how Jacob Rees-Mogg has been put in a box during this election if you look at how Pretty Patel has effectively been shut down, I think his, what he's yearning for is to have a Conservative majority which allows him to say that he's got Brexit done and then try and run to the centre. I think that's what he's hoping for. And is that where his heart lies? Is he ideologically a centrist or is this the pressure that he feels from elsewhere? 
Generally, I think so. I think that he probably feels more comfortable in um, metropolitan liberal dinner parties where socially things, certain things are socially unacceptable and difficult and probably feels the pressure of that. Um, I think that's probably his natural bent. I think the truth is that he feels that if you're a politician, you sometimes have to trim and tack in order to get to the destination you want to go to. Now, some people might say supporting Brexit to the degree that he did or getting into bed with some of the people that he certainly did was too much. He would say, it got me into Downing Street, hopefully it'll get me a majority and hopefully I can then do what I want. It's the classic political dilemma, isn't it? It is, and it's, it's really embodied in him, where people... He is probably seen as the most ambitious politician in the country and the person who will say anything to get as far as possible. Or the one that shows it the most. Well, yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> there are some pretty embatches of the people. <laughs> yes, that's true. But he, if, you, if you were to ask people to name the most ambitious yes. person in the country, they'd, they'd pr- probably pick Boris Johnson. And I think as a result of that, it's very hard for people to know what he actually believes. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think at heart he, he is a Conservative. You know, he... he believes in the values of conservatism he's he's certainly not a Corbynite is he and he's certainly no. not where Joe Swinson is but is he a one nation Tory like he claims look I mean these things definitions and things have just become so blurred and <laughs> difficult over the years I think um you look you know he, he's persuaded himself that Brexit's a good idea it's the destiny of this country and he's persuaded himself that he's the man for the next five years after that you know we cannot make windows into people's souls. In, uh, in David Cameron's autobiography, he talks about the 2015 election and about things that were going well, things that were going badly. And he says at one point, he just decided to go off the cuff, no auto cues, more people, more rallies, and to kind yeah. of just do it uh, ad libbed. As someone who was advising him at the time, was that uh, a nerve wracking thing yeah, to so, hear? So, one of the pains that we had over the first few weeks is that it was hyper disciplined. And we were getting completely slagged off. And so the air war, what we call the air war, is what's going on in the national media, was consistently criticising the campaign as being too rigid, too tight, too buttoned down. And he was feeling the pressure of it. And we all felt that somehow we don't feel comfortable with this. So we drove to Chequers one Saturday afternoon, and Linton and I, and we had a meeting with him. And we both said, OK, let's, you know, let's, let's let loose. Let's have some passion. Let's talk about it. And... You could feel on the Monday when he went out and did that, you could feel suddenly things had moved, things had changed. And what was interesting actually was that the journalists weirdly felt that they had been vindicated and given what they want, so started giving us positive press. So there's a weird kind of feedback loop there. And I think that often what happens is that the press gets so lost in the bubble, and speaking as a former editor of the BBC News um, at 6 and 10, you can get so lost in the bubble that you lose sight of what's really happening. Mm. So our our experience of the 2015 campaign was we were told it was one of the worst campaigns ever. It was a complete disaster. We were boring. We were, you know, rigid. It was awful. And then we won unexpectedly. And suddenly we walked on water. We were geniuses and it was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> the Brexit campaign, I would say we landed some pretty heavy blows. One on a lot of fronts in terms of broadcast... Um, it was extremely difficult. But after, when we lost, it was like you're all complete morons and idiots and you don't really understand what's going on. And in those circumstances, you want to say to people, 
can I just explain to you the complications and difficulties of nuances of what was really happening here? It's not that we were complete morons. It's just that we ended up boxed in, painted into corners um, in, in impossible situations. I mean, do you wish, particularly with a referendum, you could have fought a tougher campaign against Vote Leave and maybe campaigned in the way against them that they'd campaigned against you? No, because I don't feel comfortable about the fact that some of the stuff that they were doing was like claiming that 80 million Turks are about to walk into the UK or claiming that there will be a European army. And it's still to this day, people say, well, ah, you know, they are going for a European (laughs) army. We have a veto on this stuff and there's no way the British government would be part of a European army. But still people use that as an excuse for making that claim. The bus is the classic thing, those kind of things. I think that the problem that we had was, and people, I, there hasn't been a day that's gone by where somebody has said, said to me, what would you di- do differently? And I facetiously say, I would get in a time machine and go back 40 years, and I would force politicians to explain, why are we members of the EU? What is going on with globalisation? Why immigration yes. is necessary? Why it's actually something that can work? And instead, what we had was for decades... Lots of politicians, including my former boss David Cameron, traded off slagging off the EU. Um, and actually, we only had a few weeks or months to then actually try and turn that around. And when a lot of people were being disingenuous in making claims about it, that turned out to be extremely problematic. Linton Crosby, someone you mentioned uh, earlier, obviously Dominic Cummings is now the man running things. Linton Crosby, people get obsessed, and, and will have done about you as well, about these figures behind the scenes. Who are these people? Yes. Are they... So yeah, no, so I did a thing where when I wrote my book, Paul Dacre absolutely hated my gut. So basically when I wrote my book, and in the Mail on Sunday they did extracts from it, the next day there were you know several pages of the Daily Mail basically saying what a complete moron I was. And then the other half of it was saying that I'm a twisted Machiavellian political guru genius who whose evil plans to defeat Britain and all this kind of stuff. He's like, well, look, I'm either one, I'm either I am a complete idiot or I am the Machiavellian <laughs> evil genius. But, you know, I can't be both. But um, that, that was an extraordinary experience, just suddenly feeling the kind of vitriol and hatred of somebody like Paul Dacre poured down on you when actually I think if he'd read the book he would have seen that here was somebody trying to explain how did we get ourselves into this problem how did we make these mistakes what could we have done better what should we have done better ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How hard is, are people like Paul... Well, Paul Dacre specifically to deal with, you would presume that... Impossible. 
So even as even for a Conservative Prime Minister who won a majority, he hated David Cameron. He absolutely hated his ca- David Cameron. He thought he was a cuckoo in the nest. He thought he was a son of privilege who'd basically been handed everything in life mm. and was coming in and you know hugging hoodies, um, get you know hugging huskies, um, gay marriage, all this kind of stuff. And he felt like that the traditional values of this country that he believed in were under attack by somebody who was a cuckoo in the nest and supposed to be a Conservative Prime Minister. He, it was extraordinary dealing with him, the levels of vitriol and poison that he was prepared to inject into the system. And I think one of the you know, genuinely one of the best days in this country was when Lord Rethermere realised he had to get rid of him and that actually no, literally nobody in the country wanted to be interviewed or speak to the Daily Mail for fear of being turned over. And fortunately, somebody like Geordie Gray's come in, made it, you know, it's still a conservative newspaper, it's still rough and tumble, but a much easier going with the flow of the country paper that has proven you can still maintain the levels of circulation and advertising, and certainly higher advertising than you could before. But when you're at the heart of Downing Street advising a Conservative Prime Minister and your expertise is in comms and, and the media, with someone like Paul Dacre, is it best to just not engage at all, or do you try and win them over? We used to try and bring him in. I mean, he was terribly grand about how he would, like, come in. So he would, like pull it his car would chauffeur driven car would pull into Downing Street and he would sit outside for half an hour and we're like is he coming in or what um, and and just be very grand um, you know pretty uptight um, you know just just not really willing to have a sort of sensible discussion and he you know he had you know two modes which were sycophantic adulation or people that he liked and complete and utter destruction of people he didn't. I think by the end it just became almost laughable that he was just using these things and people were just looking at it and and interestingly things like the stop funding hate campaign and that kind of thing all had a real effect I think on what's going on what's going on there. Does it give you some sympathy for the Labour Party where you think the majority of newspapers in this country are, are broadly conservative sympathetic and it was hard enough for you to try and get the Daily Mail on board imagine how hard it was for Ed Miliband yeah, or Jeremy yeah, Corbyn yeah no I do and I think that the balance of newspapers in this country is you know that there are the centre right ones are more red and that kind of thing although they are their impact is less thing all I would say is like dealing with some of the centre left papers sometimes was a real problem so for example one day I always tell a, um, an anecdote of one day the Daily Telegraph had decided to splash on the fact that David Cameron was going to cut the SAS he absolutely any conservative prime minister cutting the SAS I mean it's just like the last thing that you would cut I've never seen him more angry that afternoon we were due to go on a tour of North Africa we were going to Libya Algeria and Liberia and one of the great pains is that there's a tradition that the Prime Minister goes up the pack of the plane and talks to the journalists. And I just calmed him down about the story, saying, look, we've dealt with it, don't worry, don't add any more fuel to the fire. He's like, right, 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 okay. Still, he was angry. Walks up the back of the plane, sees the Daily Telegraph there, and says, oh, great story today, by the way. What you also forgot was I'm also going to cut Trooping of the Colour and the Red Arrows. And then he turned on his heel and walked down the front of the plane. And I was, like, thinking, right... And then I turned to the press pack and said, for the avoidance of doubt, the Prime Minister was using irony to make the point that the SAS story was wrong today. And of course, he's not going to cut Trooping and Colour or the Red Arrows. We then chased across Africa, 
and like with very important things going on but there was this bubbling sense that the press was going to write that David Cameron was going to get rid of the red arrows I said you can't do that you know that's not true he was joking so we're just landing after this three day trip and my Blackberry comes alive and the first thing that flashes up on my Blackberry is the front page of the mirror which is basically Cameron to cut the red arrows wow I then, like, the, the, the steward of the plane, like, I unbuckle my seatbelt and sort of start going back to the back. I cannot believe you've done this. And the steward is saying, sit down, sit down. I called the editor of the paper when we landed. I said, I cannot believe you've done that. You know that story is not true. You know it's not true. And you put it on your front page. Try to defend it. And I said, look, if you keep on with this, I'm going to have to issue a statement about what really happened here. He said, don't worry about it. I'll deal with it in tomorrow's paper up early the next morning, hard copy of the Daily Mirror, page one, two, three, nothing, eight, nine, ten, nothing, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, nothing, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, <laughs> nothing. Finally, page twenty-seven. The page lead is victory for the Mirror's campaign to save the Red Arrows. <laughs> so his way of digging his way out of the hole Fair was to play. pretend that, that, that he had been so powerful as a newspaper that he had persuaded David Cameron to save the Red Arrows. I tell that story as a joke, but we used to deal with that kind of thing too, and it was pretty hard. During the Brexit campaign, the Sunday Times led on secret government plan to allow in a million and a half Turks. They knew that story was not right, and I really have trouble with the fact that they were prepared to write that sort of thing. So all political parties deal with it. How do you choose which stories to rebut and which ones not to? Because there are a couple of stories about David Cameron that were just out there in the ether that obviously it would have been ludicrous for him to come about pigs. <laughs> I'm thinking about pigs, yeah. And I think about that because I bought the Call Me Dave book and it's just sort of out there as a kind of truth that David Cameron put his pecker well, into a pig. Do people really believe that? Having read that passage you in the book... It's, it, no, I don't believe it at all. And actually, it was reading that book that made me not believe it because... There are so many caveats in that story. So I and yeah, and no on the record sources. No. Um, or even you know, it just didn't feel like there was any sourcing really to it. So what I felt um, with those things is very difficult. So there's an episode of The Wire very early on where the police chief is like thinking, you know, I don't know what to do. If I do this, I lose. If I do that, I lose. If I do that, I lose. What can I do? And his wife looks at him very frustratedly and says, "The game is rigged. If you do not play, you cannot lose." Yes. And I think that that is actually one of the biggest lessons I learned was when not to act, yeah. when not to throw fuel on the fire. And one of the hardest conversations is like, there is nothing you can say in that circumstance. You know, Cameron denies <laughs> this. Well, so, um, so there's literally a story about Lyndon Johnson saying something yes, very simple. Yes, I was going to say that. Somebody, I want to hear him deny it. Yeah, and I want to hear him deny it. And, speak, and that's what they're recognising is that there's a kind of truth is that like there's no way out of this for people. And that was literally about fucking pigs. The Lyndon was, Johnson it was one. literally about fucking pigs, um, and that is a. You know that's awful, and I and you and what's really hard is that there's a human being that you care about that is under extreme pressure, who's literally dealing with people claiming that he does <laughs> bestial acts, yeah. and you have to talk to him and say, look, all I can do is give you this advice: is just ignore it, don't say anything, don't comment, don't put anything on the record. And of course, what we did was I rang people up and said, look, completely off the record. It's not true, but I'm not going to say one word on the record on yes. this story and not engage with it. And you have to just try and just take the oxygen, take the fuel out of those things. But it's a pretty unpleasant thing for somebody to have to deal with. My guess would be 
that Cameron's instinct would be to joke about it and to maybe think of a gag or, or to try and diffuse it with um, to try and diffuse it with with wit. I don't know if that was his instinct on it. It was, but that would have been a very bad idea, <laughs> I think. It's sort of tempting, isn't it? But yeah. I think the problem is, is that there's nothing like cold print. Yes. You know, to take the humour out of the situation. And one of the tricks of, sort of slightly disingenuous journalists is that they pretend that something that is patently obviously isn't a joke and write it down in print yeah. and present it as if somebody's been so callous and thoughtless as to actually say this. So you, you, you just have to be incredibly careful and avoid that. But it's quite a sad state of affairs. But was he hurt by it? Did he say, oh, Craig, people keep saying I've had sex with a pig, I can't sleep <laughs> at night. He's not, he's not like that. I mean, what, what's interesting about him is that Kate Fall, who I'm very fond of and was worked with me at at number 10 for a while knew David Cameron for a long time I'd yes. never really met him before he employed me I'd met him a couple of times but not seriously she said what's amazing about David Cameron is that he takes good news and bad news the same and equanimity and I think that that was really true but as I got to know him you could see the tells yes. you could see that it was why things were winding him up or bothering him but his thing was part of leadership is not letting it show Yes. When he did try and make a joke of it, actually, he came down um, when we lost the Brexit referendum. Um, and he got upstairs to bed. I'd last seen him at four in the morning, and he came down a few hours later. Um, and he looked at me and he said, "Well, that didn't go very well." <laughs> and which a lot of people felt was like, "Well, how can he be flippant at such a serial moment?" But it was his way of trying to say, "I accept." we made mistakes, we got it wrong. I know that you were fighting in the trenches when the, we were out of ammunition and it was bitter and it was bloody and divisive and I wish it wasn't so, but he was trying to use humour in that situation. But if he'd gone outside into Downing Street and gone, well, that didn't work very well, I suspect. <laughs> it wouldn't have gone down for <laughs> a different reaction. I think people liked the lightness of touch that you had, the, the bit where he kind of whistled to himself when he walks back from the podium. Well, that was utterly bizarre. Right. So he came in the door, yeah. and I was like, shut the door. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, that what were you, some like meaningless tune? Um, and he said, he said to me, and I believe him, he said he had once come to the door of Downing Street, and there's always snappers there or somebody taking a picture, and he tried to get in and the door hadn't opened, <gasps> and he stood there for a long time looking like an idiot. Yes. And he said for some reason in his head... That it flicked in that he was going to walk to the door and knock and not be let in. And so his way of handling it was like to do a bizarre tune. <laughs> but of course, most people will never think that or feel that. And also what your enemies do, want to do, is never give you any credit. And I think we've seen quite a few examples of that actually in this election campaign. I think that Boris with the boy... That was a man who, in the fight, exhausted in the final days of the campaign, was thinking, this journalist is trying to have a gotcha moment. I should try and stop them having a gotcha moment. Therefore, I'm going to try and block it. Realised, oh my goodness, I'm really screwing this up. And then starts trying to row back quickly. When, of course, I think if he'd had his time again, he would have taken the phone, looked at it, said that I think this is terrible. But, of course you look on Twitter and suddenly this proves that this, is an, this man is an evil sociopath. Now, I've got some problems with Boris Johnson, but I don't think he's an evil sociopath. Um, and there's just 
how we articulate things, how we see things, how we don't show empathy to the people who are often in those highly pressurised situations, I, I find quite worrying sometimes. Not only did you work at Downing Street, as you said you worked at the BBC, editor the 6 and the 10 o'clock news, the BBC in this election has had more focus on it than ever before in the way that it covers stories, in the way that its journalists behave. Do you think some of the criticism is fair? I think that, you know, people like um, Laura Koonsberg are doing a brilliant job. Um, I think she's excellent, um, really big fan of hers, and I think it's an extraordinarily difficult, high-wire job, and I, I, th I think that... Um, She's good, and I know a lot of the political journalists at Westminster, and I know that they take it very seriously and want to be balanced and want to um, make sure that they get it right. I do think that sometimes, that the BBC maybe needs to have a quick look at itself a couple of times, is it sometimes gets swept away in the kind of excitement of a day and a moment and gets drawn into magnifying and amplifying stories that maybe it needs to just be a bit more careful about. And I also think that the BBC really, really, really does need to take a good hard look at what does it mean to be impartial. I think for too long they have tried to split the difference and there are certain situations where they shouldn't be splitting the difference and they should be saying, look, the overwhelming weight of evidence and opinion is this. I think climate change, they would basically, after a couple of years, they've been forced into a position where they now accept that climate change is real and that they won't have people like Nigel Lawson on talking crap, frankly, <laughs> yeah. um, and that he doesn't balance out thousands of scientists who've done huge amounts of work. They've done it there. They need to have the confidence, I think, to do it in other places. But they're deeply worried, I know, having worked there, that a page lead in the Daily Mail will be such the end of the world, and they need to be braver than that, I think. Every side thinks the BBC is biased against it. Yes. You've worked at the heart of the BBC, then went to work at Downing Street. There is a perception, as with Robbie Gibb, that the BBC is this kind of feeder school for, for the Conservative Party. I mean, well, do, do you think that's fair? No, I think that's rubbish. I mean, look, the reality is I remember when I went... David Cameron asked me to be his director of politics and communications. I genuinely had to stop for a moment and think, what do I think about this? How do I feel? I went and read his manifesto. And the reason was because as a kind of journalist, you do really take pride in trying to be balanced and yeah. trying to present things. And so you become almost slightly monkish in your approach to this and like start not, not having strong political opinions and start looking for ways to do that. So I, just, I, I, I don't buy that. Um, I do think that, that there are people like me who've gone on into um, different jobs in politics who do do the poacher turn gamekeeper type thing um, you know I think you know I felt very strongly that you know the daily politics under Robbie Gibb often had techniques and ways of doing things that were a bit beyond the pale frankly but we always kept shut up about it and then Robbie in Downing Street would be like consistently complaining about those techniques and I was like well hold on a minute mate it wasn't that long ago before you were using exactly those things so I think they, you do need to be careful about that when, when you follow on. Do you think there should be a rule about people working for the BBC not being able to go and work for political parties? No, I think that's just complete nonsense. There's plenty of people who've been, you know, gone on, you know, done things for the Labour Party, been involved. I also do think that, you know, if you were to 
peel back impartiality. The idea that the BBC is a hotbed of conservatism is just a complete nonsense. I think the truth about the BBC, having spent five and a half years working there, is the biggest problem I had was going into meetings and feeling that there is a kind of view of right-thinking liberal sentiment that washes over every meeting and the ability to challenge things. So Mark Easton, who's the Home Affairs editor there still, I remember doing some pieces with him on the 10 o'clock news which were about immigration and its impact on some communities. And a lot of people thought that this was bordering on the dodgy. It's like, actually, if we'd had more conversations about that and more discussion about that, Definitely the BBC felt very uncomfortable about addressing immigration because it thought it meant it to be a racist to just have the discussion. And to an extent, they're not completely to blame, but that has been part of the issue of like suppressing this issue for so long. It's no wonder that it bubbled up to some degree in, in the Brexit referendum. There's just a few hours now before the polls open, and I know that it's, it's very hard to, to predict, particularly when the YouGov MRP poll out this morning or last night suggests a potentially radically different outcome to the one that they were predicting just a couple of weeks ago. But with all the caveats and with all the, for all it's hard to predict, what does your gut tell you about what's going to happen when the polls close at Boris Johnson will still be Prime Minister. And I think that's probably about as far as I'm prepared to go. It looks like people I trust, like John Curtis, um, who are great sophologists, think that it's going to be a Conservative majority. But what I think, to be fair to John, what he's doing is judging snapshots at any given point in the campaign. It appears that things are narrowing a bit and that Labour are squeezing the Lib Dems and Joe Swinton's had a very bad campaign and a lot of people are prepared to vote Labour that weren't going to. So it's possible it tips into hung Parliament with Conservatives as the largest party. But if you held a gun to my head, I suspect there is going to be a majority, but... Who knows? In 2017, everybody was utterly convinced that Theresa May was going to walk it and didn't. In 2015, everybody was convinced it was going to be hung on and didn't. Everybody at 10pm on the 23rd of June 2016, literally everyone, thought that we had won. Everyone thought that Trump had lost, you know. So you really have to be careful when you're making predictions. Is there any part of you that, that, that wants a hung parliament so that you can be part of that last campaign that actually got a Tory majority? Look, I, my personal view is rem- Brexit is a fundamentally misconceived idea. It's a promise of something that's not true. It's a denial of the complications and nuances of the world that you have to work with people. Um, it's a pretense that we've lost huge tracts of sovereignty that we haven't. Um, and it's a bad idea. I think, you know, we've lost three years. I think we will lose more time because of it. But I think there comes a point where you just have to say, we lost that one, let's rebuild. And I think that the Phil Collins argument, like that the social damage that's stopping Brexit is probably worse than the economic impact of having it. I don't feel happy about it, but I do think that the idea that some coalition of Jeremy Corbyn and Nicola Sturgeon and Joe Swinson and the Greens is going to somehow create some Nirvana situation where we end Brexit and everything will be fine. It's probably going to be more chaos and I don't think people want that. No, we should be clear. Phil Collins of the Times, not the, Times. Not the, not the drummer Jeff. and singer of Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what he thinks. Well, we probably do actually. Yeah, I, I suspect he's talking. probably pretty pro-Brexit. <laughs> Imagine he is. Craig, thank you so much. You're welcome. Cheers. 
Well, there you go, Craig Oliver. It won't surprise you to hear me say this. I could have sat with him for hours and hours and hours and talked about so much more. But those brilliant insights from inside the BBC and inside Number 10, particularly during an election campaign, uh, were absolutely superb. The polls open at 7 o'clock in the morning, so make sure you go and vote. And I'll see you soon. Oh, and I should say, there are about three tickets left for the Christmas uh, political party special, Christmas party at the Bloomsbury Theatre on the 18th of December. Uh, you can get them on the Bloomsbury Theatre website, where my special guest will be Sadiq Khan. I'll see you there. Listener.